He's like, neutral isn't neutral. When I'm working and I'm moving forward and you sit on your hands, that's not okay. This is the Adventure Through the Bible podcast. My name is Matt. With me today, we have three people who are smarter than me. We've got Eric. Hey there, but I'm not so sure about Matt's wisdom in that statement. (laughs) Right? We've got Karen. I I was actually going to go the opposite direction and say we could invite anybody into the room and um, they would all be smart. Okay, sorry, that's not nice. Good morning. (laughs) Gosh. The love. For you. (laughs) <laughs> We've got Tracy. Morning. <laughs> oh, really? That's wow. <laughs> no, I just say that because I'm sitting here listening to you guys. You're all talking about real estate, medical things, and I'm just sitting here going, "Uh huh." I'll nod my head and act like I know what you're <laughs> listening, like I know what you guys are talking about. It's all good. Ah, well. <laughs> So with that, um, uh, something happened to me, guys, this week. It's very traumatic. I don't know how I'm going to handle this. I got whammed this week. You guys know what that is? I don't. Is it no. that Christmas music when you were not expecting it? <laughs> yeah. Oh. <laughs> I had I had my okay. the, the radio in my truck tuned to a specific radio station, and in the middle of the day they suddenly changed over to full-time Christmas music for the rest of the season. And the very first song I heard was uh, Last Christmas by Wham. <laughs> and if people aren't, aren't aware, there's sort of a little game that goes around to see who can go the longest without hearing that song through the, through the uh, Christmas music season. And uh, it was like the first song I heard. Bam! And I'm already out of the game. So. <laughs> well, apparently I've gone my whole life without hearing that song. I don't even know what it is. Oh, really? yes. Yeah. Yes, Last... leave it alone. Don't go there, Matt. Let's just move <laughs> <on>. <laughs> you know, The funny thing is I kind of like the song, and so it's a little funny that it's off. There's another one with Mariah Carey, All I Want for Christmas is You. I won't tell you what the name of that one is because um, it's it's not very nice. It it ends with slapped, and you can you – can, uh, yeah, so we... Derive for yourself. So we're moving on here. So you got caught with Christmas music. No, that's that's yet another reason why I don't listen to the radio. (laughs) (laughs) Well, like I said, it's funny because both of those songs. I actually kind of like those songs, but um, what? But uh, they they've kind of gotten this negative connotation. (laughs) You're part of the problem if you like those songs. So let's just leave it at that. Well, 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 what are what are your what are your least favorite Christmas songs? Because yeah, I mean, at the time we're recording this, we're still just under a week away from Thanksgiving. We haven't even had Thanksgiving yet, and I've already gotten whammed here. But um, by the time this uh, posts, it'll be after Thanksgiving, and then we'll be deep into it by then. Do you guys have like least favorite Christmas songs? Anything that's turned into elevator music. I'm like, if you're going to do the Christmas music, just do it. And, and I can just, I can call it like, that's what it is. <clears throat> but as soon as you have, as, as soon as they have taken it and put it into the Muzak form, mm. um, I'm out. Doesn't matter what song. It's just too much for me to just do the Christmas thing or don't. That's what I say. Don't, 
don't get don't get halfway into the uh you know hobby lobbyized style of uh <laughs> music can't do it hobby lobby huh yeah <laughs> well, what about you tracy you got a least favorite i don't know one that stands out like that and i try, honestly i try to avoid any station cuz i know there's a few that flip over I try to avoid them. I really can't do Christmas music until after Thanksgiving. Then <laughs> yeah. I, I can roll with it, but don't give me it before. I see people like all the stores pull out all their stuff right after Halloween. It's like, please, no, not yet. <laughs> not yet. It's definitely changed, doesn't it? Yes. When we were kids. What about you, Karen? Well, actually, one of my least. <laughs> Okay, so like the traditional Christmas carols, I don't really mind those. But yeah, don't muzak them. Like don't don't do that to me. Don't muzak anything. But as far as songs that I really dislike, not because of how they're done, but like I've disliked them from their inception is kind of the more modern ones. Like the sorry, like the Mariah Carey one. It's just it's so painfully all it's like getting stuck in a greeting card and you can't get out and it lasts for three and a half minutes and you're like no it's terrible (laughs) that's funny that's funny you know i gotta say probably my least favorite is mariah carey's rendition of oh holy night (laughs) that one is just painful to me because oh holy night is my favorite uh christmas song of all time but her version of it is just so all over the place that i just can't take it it's just, uh, you know, give me Josh Groban or Michael Crawford, you know, but I just can't, I can't take her version of it. So there's not, there's, there's not, there's a lot of people who try to sing that song and they don't really, it's like they don't, they don't get it. They don't understand it. And it's all over the place and, and they make it more about themselves than about the message of the song. But so yeah, that's probably my least favorite. Next would be Christmas shoes. I can't, I can't stand that one either. Oh my gosh, again, I don't even know what that is. Well, you're saying, you what want, have you been listening to? If you want to torture yourself, no, you I'm can good. probably find it. Some people no. love it. I just I can't take it. You just don't have any Christmas spirit, Karen. You're not listening to enough Christmas music. Well, it's not Thanksgiving yet. I don't have to. Tracy said so. I'm no, telling I know. You, I know. you got to stay clear until after Thanksgiving. No, it's funny. My wife has already been listening for two weeks in her car. And, uh, yeah, it was amazing that I didn't get whammed sooner. All right, well, let's get started here. We are beginning a new book this week. We're in the book of Judges now, and uh, we're going to see a real shift in the way everything works and, and the, way, the, the, the way that Israel uh, reacts when um, they don't have like this clear leadership ahead of them. Uh, the, 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 the notes at the book of Judges in my Bible tells me that we're going we're gonna to cover about 400 years of history in the book. Wow. And, and uh, so we're going to see a lot and we're going to see here, even even in a little bit that we read, you're going to see kind of jumps in time because, you know, it'll be so yeah. such so and so dies and they had peace for 40 years, 80 years, something like that. And um, and then they, they start goofing up again. The judges one. It starts with the uh, the continuing conquest of Canaan. At the end of Joshua, we, we read the, about Joshua's death and uh, we'll actually give him a. We actually see that again uh, in chapter two here, but we we see that we're reminded, I guess I should say, that not all of the 
uh, the people of the kingdoms that were in the area had gotten completely driven out. And the people, once Joshua dies, they're looking for some leadership against uh, the Canaanites. And God calls out the tribe of Judah to go up against them. I'm not sure why, why specifically Judah, maybe just because of who was in the area. And Judah and Simeon team up. And it's interesting when you're reading this, it talks about them as if they are people rather than as tribes. Because it talks about uh, verse 3, Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come up with me to my allotted territory. Uh, when we look at the map, Simeon was right in the middle of Judah. I think we talked about that maybe last week, week before, how it was weird how they had this round territory right in the middle of Judah's territory. But the two of them, those two tribes, join up against Canaanites and Perizzites, and they end up wiping out another 10,000 people in the land that God had given them. And we're told about this king, I'm not sure how to pronounce his name, Adoni Bezek, I think, or maybe, I don't think it's Adonai, probably Adoni Bezek. They catch him, and they do this weird thing. They cut off his toes and his his big toes and his thumbs. Yes. And that, it seems like an odd punishment but when you get to verse verse 7, it sounds like he had possibly done this to 70 other kings. So it's kind of like this was a comeuppance to him. For some reason, he had, I guess, probably tried to demean the other kings that he had conquered in the past by cutting off their t- toes and thumbs. You know, but I, I was looking at that, and I think that you render them, you render that person pretty, this is going to sound harsh, but useless. Yeah. You think about think about gripping something or a utensil or a cup or, or a sword. Yeah, a sword. You can't with no thumbs. There's no grip strength whatsoever there. You know, you've pretty much limited their ability to be a, any kind of warrior. And then if you look at the great toe, that really controls your your gait and your balance and your agility. You without a, a big toe you're you're pretty limited. So I think that he just limited them as a as a person and pretty much took away their leadership capability or capacity by doing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They could lead from the rear, they could shout orders, but they could sure. no longer lead from the front. You know, but I'm you know, I'm wondering if it, in that time frame it was, you know, the the mighty were the kings and, you know, that there could be people that wanted to come up against them and they had to defend their their leadership and with those kind of injuries or deficits, you couldn't do it. Yeah, I imagine seeing a, a, an invalid leader makes them less able to lead. It makes sense. But yeah, what a it's kind of an it just was kind of odd, you know, thing yeah. to do. But totally makes sense. Although I was I was watching a documentary on Egypt, and I, that was pretty customary. They Sometimes what they would do to prove that you're a great warrior is that you're opposing people. You would cut off something to be able to take back and show that you had conquered them. And they were just, they opened up a big vault in, in Egypt and they found nothing but right hands. They found like 700 hands and they basically said that's what they would do back then in the times of war. That that was the show that you conquered, you know, a nation or killed X amount of people is you took their an appendage. Wow. 
Yeah, or not even necessarily killed them, but but incapacitated them right. as as an opponent. Right. Mm. Wow, that'd be gruesome. Open up a room full of hands. Hands. Yeah, that's like the stuff of nightmares. That's that's awful. <laughs> well, Judah manages to take the city of Jerusalem, which seems strange to me that that they needed to take Jerusalem because I guess. Jerusalem being such a central city for Israel throughout history. You forget yeah. it wasn't always theirs? Yeah, it wasn't always theirs. That's just that's interesting. It's interesting. City? Yeah, city of peace. And apparently there was a lot of contention around it because you know they had to take it uh, and uh before before it could be considered that. And isn't that what it means? I mean, J Jeru Jerusalem. That must have, that must be a renaming, maybe, because I'm pretty sure that's a Hebrew word. Yeah, you know, this is all the way back to Abraham. Yeah, he when he uh, pursued the kings who had cap who had captured Lot, he went out and Melchizedek, the king of Jerusalem, mm-hmm. came out and Abraham. I'm reading Hebrews right now, also parallel to this. The king of Jerusalem came out, and Abraham paid a tithe to the king of Salem, and was blessed. And so there's this kind of like, whoa, where'd that come from? What's going on? And so our assumption is, like you said, that always Jerusalem was just part of Israelite history, and it was always theirs, but not so. Because earlier it was mentioned, I think in the end of Joshua, that they had not captured Jerusalem because... It was just too well fortified, and they couldn't do it then. Speaking of couldn't do it, later in the uh, chapter there, in chapter 1 in Judges, we have um, 19, verse 19, And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain, because they had chariots of iron. Mm -hmm. Except that we see later in today's reading that that does not necessarily mean a hard stop for what they could do. I think this is an interesting thing. In, in, in Joshua, it looked like all of the battles were simple. Everything was just easy. They could just roll in and just do, you know, win all the wars. And here we have some interesting, um, interesting things to, to skip ahead just a little bit in, in verse three, I mean, it's chapter three. It says, now these are the, Chapter 3, verse 1. Now, these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them, which was I thought was kind of interesting. And then verse 2, it was only in order that the generations of people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. And so mm-hmm. we flash back here to chapter 1, and we kind of have some maybe some explanation as to why they weren't easy to, able to just waltz in and take over everything. And I'm reminded a little bit of spoiled children who have everything just handed to them and they don't have to do anything to participate in the wealth that they acquire. And in my experience, and maybe you guys pitch in here too, it doesn't play out well for that generation that hasn't actually put skin in the game. Um, I remember I heard Warren, a presentation of Warren Buffett was doing once upon a time. I was there photographing the event and somebody asked a question. It was an answer format thing. And somebody asked him, 
uh, Warren Buffett a question. I said, given your tremendous amount of wealth, how did you teach the value of money to your children? And he said, well, that was easy. My kids had no idea we were rich. Mm. <laughs> they just, they didn't, they lived in a nice house. I've seen it. And it's a nice house, but it's not a, it's not a mansion that a billionaire lives in. It's just, it's not a gated community. These kids took the bus to the public school. I mean, he's, I've met him a number of times. And the first, you know, the first time that I met him, he literally hitched a ride with somebody to save the money from driving from Omaha to Lincoln. Okay. He's like, mm, yeah. he's in the top five wealthiest people in the planet. And he's like, yeah, I don't think I want to drive. I'm going to save gas for that 50 mile drive. And so <laughs> the point is, is that his children and he told his children, you're going to, you're going to get something. I won't leave you destitute, but you're going to have to earn your way. I'm giving away my money. And so they had to learn the value of what this was. And I see here in judges that God isn't just, handing the next generation everything. He's saying, no, I want you to put some skin in the game. You're going to have to try. You're going to have to work. And the, and the word in chapter, in verse 3, I'm sorry, chapter, wow, I know, how to, I know what's going on, is in chapter 3, verse 1, is he uses the word test. He uses it again in uh, verse 4, testing Israel. And I think sometimes, it's not a word that I particularly love because I don't love tests. Karen's in school still. I'm still doing some classwork on things. I mean, tests are a necessary part of getting through things. They prove what you know or don't know. But I, I would, part of me just would like to be like, hey, just go ahead and just give me the, the certificate. Let me win. Give me the grade. Let me pass without having to actually do the work. Now, that never really works well for the long run for retention of anything. And I'm wondering if some of what we're seeing all through here are those things playing out like verses in chapter one, verses 27 to 36. Basically the whole thing is a list of all of the people groups and so on that the Israelites failed to push out. We've seen evidence in, in um, Joshua that they could with God's help do this. And we see it in our reading later on that the chariots of iron are not outside of God's scope to be able to deal with. <laughs> But at this point, he didn't just give it to them. I find that fascinating that this was a test of their grit, you know. And and I, I read in, in, in Judges 1, the last part of it, 27 through 36, I kind of I wrote this down in my notes. What incomplete conquests of sin in my life remain? It's pretty easy to look at this and like, oh, yeah, right. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh. And I can go, Naphtali, should have done it. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Aco. Nah, Asher should have gotten busy with it. You know, and I can read through those other things and say, well, they should have. But then it just kind of really struck me that morning. Well, what areas in my life have I just kind of settled on? I'm like, you know, I'm just going to let that stay. Ah, that's too hard to fight that habit that sin that fill in the blank i'm just okay with i'm just gonna just i'm gonna work around that and leave it i don't know what do you guys think you know i think we see this pattern all throughout even in the exodus is when things got i don't know maybe easy isn't the word but 
when they were riding high on victories or, you know, things were easy at that point that they tend to make big mistakes. And I think it's when you get, you know, passive in that way and you forget where you came from because this was an ongoing thing during the exodus. He had to keep reminding them, don't forget where you came from. Don't forget what we had been through. That once you do that, you lose touch. And I think that makes you a little bit more vulnerable to to making these huge errors and thinking that it's you and it's not God. So I'm wondering if this is something that also keeps them grounded. You know, just like you're saying, I think if they don't have that that struggle, then they forget exactly who they belong to and who they should be following. You know, while I was listening here, it occurred to me, I, I'm seeing even a similarity going all the way back to Adam and Eve with the tree of knowledge of good and evil, where they had they had a part, they still had a part to play in what was going to happen to them. They were given a choice, mm-hmm. and in that case, they decided to do something they shouldn't have, and here they were given a command to do a thing, and they had decided not to do it. But it's it's like this continual thing with God in my mind, where God doesn't just, he doesn't just set things in front of you, he he wants you to have an active participation in whatever it is that's going to happen. So, I mean, just like with the Garden of Eden, I'm pretty sure they were supposed to help him expand that garden. But they were also supposed to, you know, they had that test of the tree. And here they have that test of, are you going to clear this land? Are you really going to appreciate what you have? Yeah, you know, you were talking about Warren Buffett. I can think of a similar story that I read one time about Walt Disney. One of his daughters, as she was younger, she was being interviewed by somebody. And they said, well, how does it feel to be the daughter of Walt Disney? And after the interview, she was kind of confused, I guess. And at one point, she she went to her dad and goes, I didn't know you were that Walt Disney. (laughs) (laughs) You know, (laughs) just funny to me because like, well, how many were there? How many are there? You know, but um, so, yeah, a similar thing. It's just uh we don't tend to just appreciate whatever is handed to us. We have to. We always appreciate a little more whatever it is we work we work for. So I'm, I'm question. I'm, my 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 question too. It deals with us right now. <clears throat> I mean, we're in 2020, which has been a heck of a year. Stupid not, year. Not just uh, not just for um, not just for the pandemic, but if if you all are listeners that aren't aware of all of the history that some of us have going through personally. It's been a year of, you know, academic challenges and work challenges and literally forest fires and being thrown into dangerous, scary medical conditions. And it's just, it's, it's been, there's not one of us that's waltzed through 2020, nor is there one of us who it's just like, oh, if it weren't for the pandemic, our lives would be just fine. Our lives would be pretty much facing giants without the pandemic. Yeah, it's kind of like, oh, and we have this other layer also. Um, Certainly to our listeners, we don't we don't know what you all are going through. But if your lives are anything like our lives, it's it is it is not just an inner tube ride down a groomed hill, you know, with a nice long run out. (laughs) It's been it's been a lot bumpier than that. And I'm wondering, do we see I'm looking at this and saying, What areas of my life am I being perhaps tested in 
that I wish it'd be like, you know what? I wish those challenges would just go away. Like Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. I wonder if the Ephraimites were just like, I wish those inhabitants of Gezer would just go away. Like, I wish they just weren't there. I don't wish I didn't have to deal with that. And mm-hmm. I'm wondering if, and so they just left them. They didn't deal with it. And so my question is, is are there things, do you feel like, we don't have to like come out with true confessions here from everybody, but are there areas that, that you feel challenged in and tested in? And I'll say, I do. And I wish that I weren't in the test. I wish it would just be like, yeah, you know, I'm a lot easier if I just could clep this one. You know, just, just take a little one pager and just be done, not have to not have to do the work. What do you guys think? Well, funny you should say all this. So just this last week I had a shall we say a breakdown of biblical proportions, personal breakdown. Complete meltdown. I have two two aspects of my life that have been crucially important to me. And they both, not nothing to do with the pandemic, well, maybe connected to the pandemic, but they both have gone off the rails this year. And I, as an individual, am left sitting here with no light at the end of my tunnel in complete despair. All right. So first of all, I'm going to read a Bible text and then I'll tell you this little story. So James chapter one, verse two, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith, we just heard the word testing back in Judges, the Mm -hmm. testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And this week, I basically mentally in prayer threw in the towel and I and I, I, I said to God, I have done everything I know to do and I've done it right. I've followed your guidance. I've done I, I have nothing left here. You do it. And he gave me one day to sit like that. And then he said, well, that's not very mature. I'm not going to do it for you. And, you know, and my my immediate response is, but I've already done everything I can do. But, But that's, it's not enough. I might have to wait right now. I might not have an immediate solution in sight that I can leap into action on, but it's still my situation. And so we've talked a, a, a few times over the course of this podcast about like, where, where in my life do I take action for myself? And where in my life do I sit back and let God do the work? And I, having done everything that I could, I genuinely felt, here's what you get for following your feelings and assuming they're true. I genuinely felt that there was nothing left to do, but hand the whole thing to God. And when I did that, I immediately heard back, but that's a cop out. You still have Mm. to do this, right? So 
Shoel just grow up a little bit and become mature? Because I don't want to, right? Like what I want to do is have something handed to me because I can't see the, the solution myself. And in the meantime, I would like to have a noisy tantrum on the floor because I would feel so much better. And then if somebody could just make me mashed potatoes and gravy and put me down for a nap, I think I'd be okay. But I, I don't get to do that. And that was that, that all just happened just this week. And then, you know, in my reading, I came across this verse and was reminded, no, this is this is part of growing up as a Christian, as a human, as a Christian. This is part of growing up. It's extremely uncomfortable. Yeah, that's it's like it's hard. I get it. I mean, I don't I'm not in your situation. Don't know what that is. But I can completely understand the concept of what you're saying. Like it would just be I would rather just please give it to me. I'll say thank you. <laughs> just yeah um but but then i don't i don't i don't have those answers and i've felt i've you know been at points of decision too and just like well do i do this or this and right. i put out a fleece and i bring it back and it's unchanged and i don't get an answer i don't get steered and and i'm looking at these people and judges and it's easy for me to look at them and go you guys should have just you know got with the program and done it Mm-hmm. And then forgotten how actually hard that that was. You know, they had God on their side, but like you said, He didn't give it to them. There are certain things He said He would do for them, but not everything. Like they, they just, if they didn't push out the inhabitants of the plain because they had you know chariots of iron, they didn't go fight them. Then those adversaries didn't go away. They were not miraculously removed. And they quit trying, you know, and we see some pretty painful results later in their history when they do this. Anyway, so, and then we get to chapter two, which the heading, I don't know what the heading in your Bible is for uh, Judges chapter two, but mine is Israel's disobedience. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I have too. And yeah. thus begins most of the Old Testament. Yeah, yeah no kidding. Yeah, and it starts out saying the angel of the Lord basically is unhappy that Israel hasn't driven out all these other influences. And, you know, we might question ourselves, I guess we've just gone through all this, why weren't they able to? And I mean, it sounds like maybe they just didn't try very hard. And then we're reminded of the death of Joshua. In looking at that, just how that started, it, it reminded me of, you know, like those little skits that, you know, you tell your kids that I gave you one thing to do. In the midst of all this trouble and everything else, it, that opening up was like somebody going, you know, I just gave you that one thing to do, and you didn't do it. But then I'm thinking of all the other trials and tribulations they went through, and it's like, I, you know, you just see them sitting there going, you know, being chastised like that. It's like you only had one job, and you didn't do it. But, you know, sitting here and listening, too, I, I thought I would, you know, let everybody go and... And I think what we're all talking about is that refinement and that being tried and tested and gold being refined by the fire to its purest form. And I think that's where all these hardships that we're going through, um, 2020 involved health issues, pandemic stuff, fires, it's that refining process that nobody likes. But when we look back at it, we come out better individuals, maybe closer to God, maybe more in touch with ourselves, more in touch with our families, our friends, 
you know, I think we gain something, but it's awfully hard to see through that, that refinement process. Mm-hmm. Yep. Hard to see the other side. It is very. Yeah. Sometimes when you're in the middle of it, it's hard to remember that we're being strengthened by it because we feel, we feel so low at the moment. You know, I feel like you're just completely broken down and beaten. And James says, "Take joy when you yeah, when you find yeah. yourself in these circumstances. Take joy because it means that you're it means that you're being grown up. It means that you are being as in like you're not in that state yet. You are being grown up. Like th- this is growing you up. And and I'm sitting there reading that, going, I I is this what adulting means? Because oh my goodness, oh, <laughs> I can balance my checkbook. Can't we just stop there?" <laughs> You're, you're, you're ahead of the game for a lot of people. I was just going to say, Tara knows this from personal experience. She's helped me with accounting before. She knows I can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no numbers. <laughs> <laughs> I actually asked an accountant once we got to the end and they're like, well, you're like a hundred dollars off. I'm like, sweet, close enough. And they're like, no, that's not how that works. <laughs> Oh, well, we're told that the next generation after Caleb's death, it, it said uh, that they did not know the Lord. That's that's the that's way it's so written. Weird. How would they not know the Lord? You know, it, it just it seems like Israel suffered from this thing where if they didn't have a specific leader, they just melted or something i don't know that uh, yeah some i don't I, I don't get it i'm with you i'm like how did they not know this we've we've already gone through i mean this is the second second generation since since um since yeah. the exodus and yeah. now we're into the third and it's like come yeah. on your grand you know you didn't hear from your grandparents about about crossing the red sea and and about or from your parents about walking over, you know, having the Jordan dried up for you and seeing the the walls of Jericho fall down. How do you, how do you not know this stuff? But you know, I is head knowledge enough though? Like, well, if you don't yeah. step into it and live it, does that really sink in? And and what generation hasn't looked at their parents and thought, you know, what are you that talking about? Yeah, that, that you you don't know my life, you know, right. and. And so, yeah, it it does seem strange cause that that they supposedly didn't know, but but I mean that's what it says. They didn't know God. They and they just wandered wandered away from it somehow. Well, I think some of that is, and this is in chapter two, verse eleven. It says, "And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals." It says yep. they abandoned the Lord. And the summary of that is in um, verse 15, and they were in terrible distress, is they probably blamed their, if they're anything like us today, is they blamed their problems on anything else but their own behavior. Mm. Yeah. And they, they just, you know, they, they, they as a people, and this, but this boggles my mind too, because the Levites were supposed to be their in the midst of all of them, kind of like seasoning, you know, like salt. They were supposed to be spread around everywhere. And they were supposed to be 
leading people. And I mean, they had written the laws on rocks and on monuments and all these other places. They read them once in a while and they chanted them back, but they didn't do it. Is that they would constantly lean over and go into worshiping these idols of the people around them that they didn't displace. I mean, at this point in history, it's a pretty straight line. God said, get rid of the people and burn all their idols. Don't do any of this stuff with their worship of their gods. Have nothing to do with it. And when they disobeyed those things, they ended up in trouble, worse and worse and worse trouble. And we begin the, you know, it's begin the yo-yo ride. And in verse 16, and the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to the judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. Soon they turned away from their way in which their fathers had walked. I mean, it's just like you could just put, put that on an endless loop almost all the way through, you know, the end of the minor prophets. Mm-hmm. It just keeps going. They did good. They did bad. They did good. They did bad. Good, they did bad. And God's mercy, this is an interesting thing to remember, is that they, in verse 18, it says, For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. It's just, it's it's depressing. But whenever the judge died, it's basically then God would raise up a judge, save them, and then in 19, but whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. It's just, it's a continual thing. And in verse 22, it says, in order to test Israel. And again, in verse 1 of chapter 3, to test Israel. And then again in verse 4, they were for the testing of Israel, to know whether Israel would obey the commandment of the Lord. So these, these, these challenges that they faced were, they were tests to see, would they stick with God? Would they say, okay, we can't do this, but you can? Yeah. Chapter 3, we get into the first of the judges. Now, God raised up these people known as judges. It seems like kind of each generation maybe had at least one, maybe two, to try to pull them back. It's like God recognized they kind of needed a visual representative to, to look at and follow and and lead them, you know, and... Um, when they had fallen into this this worship of uh, Baal and Asherah, it says that God had sold them to Kushan Rishathaim for eight years. And he was the king of Mesopotamia. And when the people cried out, he raised this guy Othniel. So it was interesting when the people finally, it sounds like the people realized they were in a bad place. And finally cried out to God, like there's always been this, well, while we say that Israel fell away, it's not like everybody fell away. There was all, There's always been a faithful yeah. group, we could call them the remnant, from the beginning, and they go all the way through the end, that that is still following God and wants wants him to, to lead. And when they cry out, he answers, and he raises this guy, Othniel, and um, through... Through Othniel, this Kushan Rishathaim gets defeated. 
And there's not a lot of detail there, but it says once he's defeated, Israel gets 40 years of peace <laughs> until Othniel dies. And it's like it's like the cycle starts all over again. Yeah, God, God, it's verse yeah. 12. And the people yeah. again did what was evil inside of the Lord. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so this guy Eglon of Moab gains power. And he brings a couple of others in, Ammon and Amalek. You know, we keep hearing that word Amalek. They never did get rid of them. And he unites them against Israel. And they end up under him for 18 years. And God brings this guy Ehud, who's a Benjamite. Now, it's interesting. They are, the Benjamites throughout the whole story, I don't understand the genetics of this. Maybe, Tracy, you can pitch in. They're known to be left-handed. Like, for <laughs> hundreds of years like they're just like all left-handed it seems like yeah that that is interesting i wonder if they you know actually trained them to be you know you can train somebody to be left-handed we used to have this weird thing i remember hearing a weird thing of with if a kid would start writing with their left hand they would actively train him to be yeah. right-handed oh yeah it happened know? to my grandpa for sure his yeah. teachers smack him with a ruler if he was doing stuff left-handed and he's like well he learned to do stuff right-handed even though he, he wasn't yeah but anyways, that's the reason that's important in the story, if you guys haven't read this, is he straps a sword on his right side, which we may look at that and like, okay, whatever. But remember, if you were right-handed, you would wear your sword on your left side. Right. And so mm -hmm. when he went in to see the king, they would probably do the pat-down. Like, oh, is a guy carrying any weapons? And they would pat down his left side, because that's where a right-handed person would carry his sword. So they pat down his left side. He's like, nope, he doesn't have a sword. But he did. He had a sword on the other side. Basically, he snuck it in past the king's guards, and it's, it's basically he kills. If you want to get graphic, you can read it. <laughs> oh, it's it's gruesome, man. Yeah. It's it's gruesome. Shoves the sword in his belly so far that the hilt goes. I mean, this this guy must have been huge. I'm thinking. I was thinking you know. Job of the Hut when I was reading. <laughs> <it>. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just just runs him through with this sword. After he's like, he's like. How does he put it? I have a message from God for you and shoves this belt, this sword through the guy to the point where the, the hilt gets buried in him. <laughs> and then he just leaves. Just leaves him. He you know, does read a bit the like a Western. The, the last smart words and then the bad guy gets it and then the, the guy like rides away into the sunset. I mean, it's kind of that story. Yeah. 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 You know, and looking at that, you know, too, I was thinking exactly what Eric was saying, though, when I was reading it, is that you know, even for like boxers, when they train, they usually train against people that are right-handed. So you learn defenses right-handed. And when you have to fight somebody that's a southpaw or left-handed, it, it twists the way you think and the way you defend. And it leaves you open and vulnerable to that. So not only did he wear his sword on the opposite side, so maybe he didn't get the correct pat down, you know, to see if he was was had a weapon. But also even the defense of maybe even the king or whatever is going to be turned around and you can't defend something like that if you're not ready for it. So it, it put him at a distinct advantage because nobody had trained against left-handed people. Yeah, you bring up a good point that God used his unique ability in this case to deliver Israel. And he did. And they then after he killed this king, they raised up a little army and uh, they went out and 
knocked down the Moabites, which if, if I remember right, I believe, wasn't Moab the descendants of one of Lot's children? Help me out here. Yeah, I think he's the Sounds older, right. the, I think he was the son of the older daughter. If I remember Moab and Ammon, right? Yeah, I think so, yeah. Yeah, so they show up again and again. So then we have, I find it fascinating that Shamgar, he gets, he gets like one sentence. Yeah. And after this was Shamgar, oh yeah, you know, the guy who killed 600 Philistines with an ox goad. An ox goad, oh my goodness. <laughs> Do you guys I'm see like, what an ox goad looks like? I didn't look it up, what is it? I didn't know what, I didn't know what it was. You know, because I remember somewhere along the line, there's something about, oh, I was thinking of Paul, uh, Saul, when he says you find it hard to kick against the goads. I'm like, OK, what's a goad? I want to know what a goad is. So I looked it up. It's like so an ox goad is like a big pole with this wicked looking metal hook at the end. And I'm guessing they would use that to, you know, poke the poke the cattle to get them to move and stuff. But I mean, it's probably a good six inches to a foot like hook. I kind of think like the Grim Reaper's scythe. You know, but not that big, you know, it's so so this okay, guy so went and really I don't have enough of an imagination because I immediately pictured a cattle prod. Honestly, that's what came to my mind. Well, it's oh, kind yeah, of a, it is it. like a cattle prod. It's kind of like a cattle prod. But uh, instead of just like be a, instead of just a poke, it's got like a hook at the end. It so is. That Boy, I assume you could you could, you know, poke at the I mean, you're using hand gestures in the camera so that all of our <laughs> podcasters can see it. <laughs> <laughs> But, Very helpful. Uh, Thank you. But yeah, but just imagine a long pole, and you, I mean, just Google it. You'll you'll see it. Heck, maybe I'll put a picture of it up on the on the Facebook page. So here's but, what uh, it reminds me of: is Joshua twenty three, ten. One man of you puts to flight a thousand, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you. Mm-hmm. Because it's really that's the only way that one guy with a farming implement can kill six hundred warriors yeah that would be boy you talk about an awesome action scene in a movie though holy cow one guy going up against 600 people with this thing i mean that's yeah 600 i mean that's just unheard of yeah and that's where and that's where it's like god uses whoever is willing to be used and who he calls specifically even in a circuit you know certain Unusual circumstance, which we run right into with Deborah and Barrick. Yeah, Deborah's kind of. I'm. I'm I get stuck on historical details. Um, eight to ten feet long, and six inches in circumference, with an iron spike or point at one end. So, like, holy cow! Mm -hmm. This is like, this thing's crazy. Okay, I'm done now. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, no, yeah, no. What I saw, it, I was like, "Oh wow, that is quite the thing to go after a bunch of six hundred Philistines with." It was, it was kind of amazing. Just, you know, I mean, well, we get another guy that kills a lot of Philistines with a, with a pretty simple implement. Not this week, but we'll get there with the uh, with the jawbone. Yeah, but yeah, we're not talking about Samson yet. We're talking about Deborah now. Deborah, uh, Deborah is kind of an interesting person here. It it. It strikes me very interesting that a woman gets raised up as a judge in this patriarchal society. Yeah. And I think she recognizes, too, how how unique this is for the time. Mm-hmm. Um, because as Israel's failed again, and this guy Jabin t- takes power, and he has this commander named Sisera, 
Deborah finds herself in this position of authority in in the nation of Israel. And I'm wondering a little bit, just as a side note here, if she's named after Rebecca's nurse, because if you remember back, we had a, this has been a while now, but um, a nurse for Rebecca who was named Deborah, and then she had a tree named after her. And it says, she says here that Deborah was, would sit underneath this palm tree of Deborah. And I'm wondering if that's the same tree from, from back then. I but just would, found it interesting that they mentioned like, oh, and she sits under that tree. Yeah. Like that's a geographical thing that everybody knew. It's like, oh yeah, her tree. Yeah. Well, I, I got really sidetracked because I just got excited that apparently if I need to hold court, which I've tried to do on a number of occasions and it never works, apparently I need a tree of Karen. There you go. There you go. That's it. And that's I think I, I've been thinking about this since I read this the other day. I think in our area it should be a cottonwood. We're gonna get we're gonna get a cottonwood of Karen. Okay. There you go. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to remember where I saw it because I remember specifically they talked about this terebinth of of they they, they uh, it doesn't it's not that important it, it's interesting I don't know because the the first Deborah was buried specifically under this this terebinth tree which I guess I need to look up and see what a terebinth tree looks like. But I'm wondering if it's the same tree. I don't know how long a terebinth tree would, would live because we're... And mine, mine in verse 5 says this, the palm of Deborah. Yeah. 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 So I don't know if it's the same. I don't know if a terebinth is a type of palm. I need, I need to look that up. But I'm fascinated by you, like what you said, Matt, that there's a woman who's... It's not because if she's married, right? So it wasn't like, you know, that... It's just, and, and everybody seems to take it for granted. She's a judge. She's the one who decides these things. They're okay with this. And yet later we see commentary that makes it sound like women never had anything to do, never even had so much as to speak about anything. And yet, quite clearly, not only is she judging, in verse 4 it says, Deborah, a prophetess, God is legitimately used. She didn't just usurp this power. God called her. She's a prophetess. She's a judge. And later we find out she's a warrior. It's, it is, I mean, it's right there. And so it wasn't like Israel didn't have any other males in the country. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, she's clearly recognizing too, this, this, this uniqueness that, that or this unique position she has as a woman, because Barak, Barak is the one who's supposed to be leading these armies. And she actually tells him to take, 10,000 men from specifically Naphtali and Zebulun and go up against these Canaanites. And, and Barrett goes, I'm not going if you don't go. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, and she goes, well, fine, I'll go. But that means you're not going to get the, you're not going to get the credit for this thing. So, you know, she's, she's, she said, it's good. How, how did she put it? She says, the Lord will how'd you put it? Oh, because it says, I'll go basically. There's no, there's no glory in it for you because the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. So she's clearly recognizing the position that women had and, and how Barak, he's just not going to, he's not going to, he's not going to get the glory for this. The glory is all going to go to a, to a woman, which it's, you know, that would seem like maybe it'd be a bit of a deterrent to him to wait for her to go with him. But he's like, Nope, I'm not going if you don't go. But he doesn't. I find it fascinating. He didn't let his pride 
stop him there. He's like, nope, you know what? I, you're, you're God's messenger. You're God's. I know. I, but he's been, he had been called, but he didn't want to do it on his own for whatever reason. And she says, yeah, okay, well, I'll go. But yeah, it's going to be, you know, Cicero is going to fall, but not to, not to a man, which is interesting because he would probably assume that Deborah is going to get it, the glory mm. for killing Cicero, but it's not even her. Right. It's a different woman. So he, he kind of like, he's not even number two in line. He's number three. And he goes anyways. What I find fascinating is I read this and he, they go to war and the Jabin and Cicero are pretty cocky about this because they have chariots. And we saw back in chapter one is that Judah wouldn't push out the, um, the Canaanites because they had chariots. But here Cicero shows up against, oops, Cicero shows up against um, uh, Barak and Deborah with chariots. And we don't really understand what happens. I mean, the battle is just like, oh, and they fought and Deborah and Barak prevailed. But in the song of Deborah in yeah. chapter five, we understand what's happening. The reason I can I could look for this and understand is my my children had a children's book of the song of Deborah. And it's just an illustrated book with drawings and so on. And it brings out some of the little details here that would be easy to miss. In, in chapter 5, verses 4 and 5, it says there's rain and trembling of the earth. Like, was there an earthquake or was this just like a crazy hard rain? And in verse 21 of chapter 5, we see that there was rain and it flooded the Kishon. So here's what happened. Is this book that I have is also informed. It's a children's book, paperback, little, you know, kid's book. Is that it's informed by Jewish cultural um, historical detail is they went to do battle on the plains, right? Well, a chariot's going to do pretty awesome on a big, flat, level plain. Except that God caused this crazy heavy rain. The Kishon floods. Now there is mud everywhere. And all of a sudden, the Air Force can't get off the ground. <laughs> and we saw what happened in Pearl Harbor when the planes couldn't take off during the attack. Airplanes not in the air are not very useful. Right. Chariots that can't rush around because the mud's too deep basically put their people at a super bad disadvantage because they're assuming in a chariot that they're racing around because a lot of chariots would actually have big, long knives sticking out from their wheels. And you'd just be basically like a big lawnmower. You'd just run out there and just knock people down with them. Well, if you're now all of a sudden, you're a driver and you're in, a, in an immobile thing with a horse that can't go anywhere, you're literally, you're a sitting duck. You're a duck sitting in this little metal container that can't go anywhere and you're going to get killed. And they did. And so this was a miraculous, God said, oh yeah, you think you're scared of chariots, Israel? I will render those useless. Watch this. Hmm. And all of a sudden, all of these chariots, instead of being an asset, are this terrible liability. And they're wiped out. Because God showed up in a super, again, we've seen this before with, with God, and he uses nature to do what he needs nature to do. He just does it. Jesus, he needs to take a shortcut. He just walks across the water. The disciples are like, I don't know about this. I don't know. It's like, put down your nets, guys. I can take care of you. Oh, my goodness. Our nets are breaking. It's the biggest catch of our whole life. 
Mm. We did, the Israelites are against the, the Red Sea. What do we do? What do we do? God says, yeah, I, I got this. Puts down a cloud between them and the Egyptians the, in total darkness. They're like, whoa, wait, what? And next thing they know, the Israelites are on the other side, and the Egyptians are like, yeah, watch this. We're going to come after you. And God says, not so fast. And he uses nature to, and we see it again here. It would be easy to miss. But that's what happens in here. And Deborah and Barak put Cicero to run. Yeah, and Cicero runs to a place where I'm guessing he thought he had an ally. He's, he did, he because runs... it says specifically that the Kenites, who we remember, were Noah's in-laws. Right. They were kind of the Switzerland of uh, Israel at that time, apparently. They had their own little area. They weren't necessarily part of the Israelites, but they weren't necessarily against the Israelites. So they had some sort of treaty with Jabin to where they were neutral. And so Sisera thinks, ah, oh, I'm going to catch a break here. Yeah, not so much. He, he, he goes to the tent of the wife of Haber, the Kenite, mm-hmm. who is actually who told, who told uh, Sisera where to go and, and find the Israelites to fight them. But he, he goes to this woman's, uh, her name is, I believe, J-L, J-A-E-L, mm-hmm. and wants to hide in her tent. And you know, the story goes that he asks her for some water and she's like extra kind and gives him some mm-hmm. milk instead. <laughs> and I'm guessing the guy lays down to take a nap. Setting the trap. Yeah. Yeah, she gives him warm Here, milk and says, take a nap. Yeah. I'd love to offer you um, a glass of tryptophan and a warm blankie. Right. <laughs> exactly what happens. <laughs> he guy. must be tired after all that battle. Here, take a nap. Yeah, and now you <laughs> talk of. You talk about a, a gruesome scene. She takes a tent peg and drives it right through his skull, right into the, it says into the ground. I mean, this is like with malice. She she mm-hmm. she she does this guy in, and holy smokes! I mean, you know, this is <laughs> between this and and uh, and uh, the the current the one before where the guy you know the sword through the belly. Um, this is one of those times when you wonder how in the world do people think that the Bible is uh, full of children's stories? <laughs> Who in their right mind is going to tell their kids this story is a bedtime story, you know? But but uh, JL I thought that if I had a daughter who I could name with exclusive naming powers, I would name her JL. Yeah, this is a man. I mean, she's she definitely takes things into her own hands because it seems yep. pretty clear that her husband is obviously on Cicero's seems to me is on Cicero's side. I mean, Eric was talking about neutral territory, but it sounds more like sounded to me like like Haber was was very much on Cicero's side through this. Well, at least he doesn't want to get caught in the middle. He's like, hey, don't come after me. That's yeah, I'm not the one you want. I'm not the droid you're looking for. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, I understood that reference. Um, <laughs> well, you know, you mentioned something interesting is you said, um, you know, he they were I said it actually that they were kind of neutral, they were a little bit allies, they didn't want to get involved in other people's business, is in 523, this is in Deborah's song, in in 20, also just to go back here, the heaven, you know, from heaven the stars fought. So basically, Supernatural gets involved with with this. But then in verse 23, it says, Curse... Miroz says the angel of the Lord cursed its inhabitants thoroughly because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. So he's 
he says specifically, it's like, oh, you guys who are just neutral, you're just kind of throwing your hands up like, hey, look, I'm not for anybody. I'm not against anybody. I'm just, I'm not going to pick sides here. God's just cursed. He's like, neutral isn't neutral. When I'm working and I'm moving forward and you sit on your hands, that's not okay. Yeah, and I was curious who this morose was. And it looks like it, I think it was a little city right north of Mount Tabor. And it's right on the border between Issachar and Naphtali. So it's it's like, why are, you know, why are you sitting there doing nothing? Because um, who was it that got, got, yeah, well, it was Naphtali and Zebulun, who, uh, the men who were, were fighting uh, against, against Jabin. So you're wondering why, why this Moroz was just, was just sitting there when they're, they're right on the border of the whole thing. And it's like just sitting back and waiting to see what's going to happen. So, yeah, you can't just sit there doing nothing. Oh, I think it was Reuben that stayed behind, right? I'm looking in verse 15. It says, The princes of Issachar were with Deborah. Issachar was with Barak, sent under his command into the valley. In the districts of Reuben, there was much searching of heart. Why did you stay among the sheep pens? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think I think that's how it played out. Yeah, there's a bit of a rebuke through through the entire yeah. well, through the song Gilead, of Deborah. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan, and Dan. Why did he linger by the ships? Asher remained remained on the coast and stayed in his mm-hmm. cove. The people of Zebulun risked their very lives, and so did Naphtali on the terraced fields. So it's like Zebulun, Naphtali, Issachar were in action. So mm-hmm. in essence, here I'm going to outline it, how all the players were in. Thank you for your help in a sarcastic way to all the people <laughs> kind of hung by. I haven't forgot about you, but I'm not going to paint you in such a good light. Yeah. You know? Before we leave JL, there was a thing there that in, I found interesting. Verse 24, the way she is referred to there is the most blessed among women is JL. That reminded me of Luke 128 when they're talking about uh, Mary, how she was blessed among women. So it's very interesting to me that this woman kind of gets pulled out in a similar light to Mary, the mother of Jesus, as being this most most blessed among women, or at least using a similar phrase. I don't know if you guys noticed that or if it if it sparked anything for you, but it it was um, I found it it was interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this this whole thing probably would have been, and it's interesting because we have stories, and then once in a while we have songs. Mm-hmm. And it's not super common that we have songs singing the of the of the heroes. We do have it. We have the song of um, of Miriam after they cross the Red Sea. We have the song of uh, Deborah and Barak. We have the song of um, I believe it's Samuel's mother, whose name escapes me just at this moment. Anna. Anna. Yeah, which is interesting because Mary's song. Roughly two-thirds of that is a straight-up copy of Hannah's song. Yeah, yeah. And so the, the Israelites knew these songs. Because you think about it, when, when Mary, the mother of Jesus, knew the song of Hannah, that's not like it was top 40, you know, that season. It wasn't like, oh, this summer's top hit, the song of Hannah. I mean, so Mary's singing this thing way, 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 decades later. And so my hunch is, is the children of Israel were singing the song of Deborah and Barak. And like the, the kids book that I referenced earlier, the whole thing is set in verse. 
the whole thing is in rhyming verse, the story of Deborah and Barak in their battle against Sisera, because you remember it that way. And I just find it fascinating that there are certain things, certain times, when we're told stories, you know, Ehud killing this guy, and then there's other times when they're put in verse in their stories. I don't have a theory behind why that is, but I find it fascinating that some folks get a story and some folks get a song, and in this case, they get both. Well, songs, yeah. Well, songs get stuck in your head. You know, we talked, we started talking about Christmas, Christmas carols here. Think about how many of those you know by heart. You know, they just get stuck there. You know, I just think and, it's fascinating. Like there would be yeah. a purpose to that. Like, look, God used a woman and a guy we've never heard of before, who was basically afraid to go out on his own until she was saying, "All right, fine, I'll go with you." That there would be a song that would be put in their heads that they would. That it would put a message in their head of something good and useful and helpful and remember that, yeah, you know what? God used a woman who used to be a judge sitting under a palm tree and they wiped out the most ad- technologically advanced army of the day. A pretty cool reminder. Yeah, it is. And there's little details. I really liked how the song pointed out some of those details that we didn't get from the basic story, like the flooding mm-hmm. of, of the plane and, and things like that. And, you get a little bit there about it almost sounds like maybe I'm not sure what word I want to use, but talking about how Cicero's mother was looking and waiting for him to come home and yeah. and how they're like, yeah, he's probably, you know, he's probably conquering everything and he's going to come back with the plunder and stuff. And like, no, he died in a tent with a with a with a piece of wood through it, you know, and stick through his head, through his head. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of which, I. I just kind of laughed because uh, the the way that was described way back way back in four twenty one, you know, she sticks this tent pick through his head, and then he goes, "So he died." Yeah, right. <laughs> like you think? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that one that one left a mark. <laughs> this just cracked me up. Yeah, so he died. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> the whole thing ends with, again, like a lot of these chapters did, and the land had peace mm-hmm. for, you know, for a while. And it's easy, and I wouldn't want us to, to lose value from, for today from what they did then, both in a, in a societal, cultural level of what are we doing, and more importantly, because my sphere of influence does not include Washington, D.C., with the possible exception of my sister who lives in the area, I might have some influence on her. Um, just something that I would say, but I can't make her do anything, right? Is that, what are we doing? Because verse 1 of chapter 6, we're starting in next week's reading, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. It's just yeah. we go through these cycles, and I wonder what inventory of our own life lives the things in our lives are we taking from this and and what are we doing about it well and i think our society i think we're seeing now we're starting to see our society degrade as they move more and more away from the principles we see in the bible i know there's people out there that'll that would disagree with me they're probably not listening to to us you know here but but as we see we see elements of society going against principles that have been laid down 
just in the few books of the Bible that we've read so far. And we wonder why have we had this year of, you know, this terrible virus and why is, why is the political scheme of things such an uproar and we have so much division and people not getting along and, you know, up and down with the economy and, you know, and I'm not saying that God is putting his hands out and making things happen, but as we've, we've been pulling away from principles as a society, we start seeing that God's creation is, is, uh, acting out against us as it, it, um, try, you know, I, I, my perspective, perspective on things is that sin gets pushed out by God's creation. Without God's hand protect, you know, sitting over things, it would just be it would just be completely eradicated because yeah, it, because, yeah, because creation in, would just push it away. Well, in Revelation, it, it speaks of something like that that God is holding back the winds of strife. Yeah, God mm-hmm. is not blowing the winds of strife; He is actively holding them back. And yeah. as we continually say, "We want nothing to do with you. We're going to do it on our own." He lets those winds just a little bit. He's like, well, all right, if you want my hand to let go of that one, I will. And then we reap that whirlwind. And we're so like, why I, did that go so wrong? I think it's important to note that the freedom of choice that existed in the Garden of Eden, okay, the world was perfect, created by God's hand for God's purpose, and he put the people in the Garden. And even within that perfect realm, he left freedom of choice. He made an opportunity to turn away from him on purpose, like by your own volition. And that choice still exists. So I, I watch society with interest. I watch nature with interest. I think, given I've read Revelation and I know how the story ends, I don't have any perspective that this is avoidable. And it makes me think of texts in the New Testament that say things like the earth will grow old like a garment. And because of lawlessness, the love of many will grow cold and uh, things like that. And I just I sit back and I watch with fascination. I don't like seeing it. I don't like seeing my own friends caught up in it. I don't like getting caught up in it. You know, even though I know better, I find myself getting caught up in it sometimes and like wanting to get into the trenches and fight for what I believe is right and and things like that. And it's like, no, that's not, that's, this is not the, this is not the hill to die on. You know, (laughs) there are much grander things going on in the world. And I just, I just watch the whole thing with fascination and I, Agree with what you're saying, Matt, that like sin is becoming more and more prevalent. But I would just interject that the, the freedom of choice is always there and that individuals and communities and societies as a whole are always free to choose God or choose not God. Yeah. And that is the entire point of love me. If you love me, keep my commandments, not keep my commandments because hailstones are coming. It's if you love me. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, and that, that ties right into that last verse of the book, too. Or the chapter, I'm sorry. Let all your enemies perish, O Lord, but let those who love him be like the sun when it comes out in full strength. 
you know, if we want to be on the right side, we need to be, we need to love God, which we've reiterated over and over means means doing the things He's asked us to do and mm-hmm. understanding that He has asked us to do things for our good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, love God and love others, and you know, by this, if you love me, keep my commandments, and by this, will all men know that you love me, that you show love for one another. Like that's that's. Mm-hmm. That gets hard sometimes, but there it is. If we serve, if we genuinely serve God, it should show up in our choices and our character. Right, and I think that's a big. That's the big point. Is you know, can we avoid avoid those pitfalls like you're talking about? You know, do I want to get caught up in that? And it is. I think that sometimes can be the most difficult part is not to get caught up and to have you know, higher thoughts and keep your focus on God himself, you know, and mm-hmm. especially too during these times when it's so easily easy to be drawn in. Yep. Everything's so inflammatory and it's ready to jump up on it. I, let's, let's see. I had, I have one button that's been left unpushed and you're jumping on it. You know, that kind of a thing. It's like, yeah. mm, just mm-hmm. ease back, ease back. It is okay. The world is supposed to end in, fire and destruction that's how we get it made new yeah people forget that it's not going to be a pretty process yeah yeah it makes it interesting you know how do i pray about this god do i pray for everything to be hunky-dory right now or do i just pray for your will to happen god and and uh just make me make me able to stand up whatever happens you know yeah Uh, um as we follow, as we follow him, our path will be clear. I think. Well, on that thought, let's uh, let's 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 call it a day on this one. Uh, next week we will pick it up with Joshua six through ten, and we're going to be talking uh, judges. <laughs> let me let me try that again. We'll pick it up next week with with judges six through ten, and we will be talking about Gideon, who is a He's a guy I don't know a lot about, so I'll be interested to talk about him a lot. I know he's got his Bibles in all the hotels. <laughs> you know. And I remember that he had 70 sons. That's more, yeah. I, you know, I know I've read through it before, and I'm always like, I don't know. But hey, there's a lot in here about him, so I'm going to be interested to, I'll be interested to, to read about him. So next week, we will pick it up with Judges 6 through 10. Keep in mind, you can reach us at attbpodcast at theadventure.org. We'd love to hear from you. If you, uh, you like what we say, don't like we say, what we say, just want to say hi, we'd like to hear from you. So, so write in. I'm talking to you. Look for us on Facebook. Be sure you share the podcast with your friends and family and subscribe so that you get us each and every week. We'll talk to you again next week. Thanks for listening.